This is Cardinal Francis George. I invite you to join me for the next few minutes to reflect with Father Robert Barron on the Word of God, which is the Word on Fire. Word on Fire Catholic Ministries is a nonprofit ministry at the forefront of Catholic evangelization, using new media to spread the faith on every continent. Father Barron challenges us to open our hearts to the Word on Fire, which is God's Word of love for each of us. If our hearts are open, the Lord can change and transform us so that we might speak with love about the one who is love. The global benefactors of Word on Fire, with the support of the Archdiocese of Chicago, now present Word on Fire. Peace be with you. Friends, we enter this weekend into the holy season of Lent, these 40 days of preparation for Easter. And the first reading for Mass on this first Sunday of Lent is the section of the third chapter of the book of Genesis, which deals with the creation of human beings and their subsequent fall from friendship with God. Now, here's the thing. Like a baseball coach who compels even his veterans to relearn the basics of the game every spring, the Church invites us, during this kind of spring training of Lent, to revisit the spiritual fundamentals. That's why the readings for Lent are, are so wonderful. They're kind of archetypal, basic. It's a revisiting of the fundamentals. You know, the greatest golfer that ever lived, Jack Nicholas, even when he was at the top of his game, would begin every season by visiting his old teacher, a fellow named Jack Grout. And together they would go over the basic fundamentals of the game grip and stance and alignment and the, the fundamentals of the swing. Even the great Jet Nichols, the height of his powers, went back to the basics. Well, the same thing's going on here. We go back to the spiritual basics every Lent, and there's, there's no clearer display than in this wonderful story from the book of Genesis. Here's the first thing we hear. The Lord God formed man out of the clay of the ground, and blew into his nostrils the breath of life. The God of the Bible never despises matter, for he created it, and everything he made is good. In fact, the collectivity of all he made is very good. Our bodies are indeed made from the earth, from the lowly stuff of atoms and molecules and minerals. I mean, our scientific imagination knows much more clearly than the biblical author did exactly what it means to say that we were formed out of clay. God, here's the point, God exults in our physicality, and so should we. There are all kinds of spiritual deceptions which are based upon this despising of matter. Forms of dualism and Gnosticism and Puritanism. They are finally unbiblical. The problem with us, and, and I'll get to that, there is a problem with us, but it's not our bodies, not our physicality. God formed us out of the clay of the ground. Now, at the same time, we are more than mere matter, for God blew into our nostrils a life akin to his own and ordered to him. 
beautiful, the breath of life, the breath there in Hebrew, ruach, spiritus, translates that into Latin, pneuma into Greek, breath or wind, air. What is this spiritus that God has breathed into us? It's precisely this ordering of our deepest selves to God. Minds that seek absolute truth, and not just particular truths. Wills that desire goodness itself, and not just particular goods. Souls that will not rest until they come into the presence of the fullness of beauty, not just particular beautiful things. We're made from the earth, yes, but we're also endowed with a life that orders us to God. The tragedy of the secularist ideology is that it denies this properly spiritual dimension of human existence, reducing everything in us to matter alone, construing the deepest aspirations of the heart as psychological quirks or wish-fulfilling delusions. Thomas Aquinas, reflecting the biblical understanding, said the human being is a kind of microcosm. Why? Well, because he contains within himself both the physical and the spiritual. The Bible's teaching here, very important teaching, everybody, very important, to know and honor both dimensions of our humanity is the path to joy. To overstress one or the other, and it happens up and down the ages, overstressing the physical, overstressing the spiritual, That's a principal source of mischief. Next, the book of Genesis says that God placed his human creatures in the midst of a garden and gave them free reign to eat of practically all the trees found there. Unlike the gods of classical mythology, the God of the Bible, the true God, is not in a rivalrous relationship to human beings. On the contrary, as St. Irenaeus said, his glory is that we be fully alive. For he made us solely for the purpose of sharing his joy with us. That's why we're in a garden from the beginning. It's also why the church fathers consistently interpreted the trees in the garden as evocative of philosophy and science, politics, art, stimulating conversation, friendship, sexuality, all the things that make human life rich and full. It's furthermore why puritanical fussiness about pleasures both intellectual and sensual is simply not biblical. God wants us in a garden. He wants us alive and fully flourishing. He wants us using all of our powers as fully as they can be used. We're made from the clay of the ground, we aspire to God, and we're planted in a garden. There's the biblical vision, which is the deepest humanism imaginable. Can I say that again? The deepest humanism on display anywhere in the traditions of the world is right here, it seems to me. Next, we're told that these first humans are instructed to refrain from eating the fruit of only one tree. And as we know, thereupon hangs a rather important tale. 
The tree in question is identified as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What does that mean? It means a form of knowing that is the unique prerogative of God. Since God himself is the unconditioned good, he alone is the legitimate criterion of what is morally right and wrong. Again, God's not one being among many, not one good thing among many, but he's rather the unconditioned good itself. And that's why his own being is the criterion of what is morally right or wrong. So according to the symbolic system of this story, the eating of the fruit of this forbidden tree, listen now, is the act of arrogating to oneself what belongs in a privileged way to God. It is to make of the human will itself the criterion of good and evil. And from this subtle move on the biblical reading, misery has followed as surely as night follows the day. In a very subtle way, the biblical author here has put his finger on what the fundamental problem is. Notice, please, it's not so much a particular sin. Like they did this, you know, it's adultery or it's murder or it's, or it's thievery or something. It's eating of the fruit of this tree. You say, well, why in the world would that be such a problem? Well, see, understand the semiotics or symbolic logic of this story. It's this fundamental mistake of arrogating to oneself the prerogative of determining good and evil. That's where the trouble comes from. Notice, please, how wickedly and cunningly the serpent tempted Eve. God knows well that the moment you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you'll be like gods who know what is good and what is evil. See, the basic sin, this original sin, is precisely this self-deification, this apotheosizing, deifying of the will. Now, lest you think all this is just abstract theological musing, remember something I've told you by now many times. The 1992 Supreme Court decision in the matter of Casey versus Planned Parenthood. It was an abortion-related case. But writing for the majority, Justice Kennedy opined something that is, goes way beyond just the issue of abortion. It gets to a fundamental spiritual dysfunction that bedevils us today. Listen now to part of Justice Kennedy's opinion. Quote, At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, of the mystery of human life. Close quote. Frankly, everybody, I can't imagine a more perfect description of what it means to grasp at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil than that statement. If Justice Kennedy is right, individual freedom completely trumps objective value and becomes itself the indisputable criterion of right and wrong. And if the book of Genesis is right, such a move is the elemental dysfunction, the primordial mistake, the original calamity. 
And of course, the Supreme Court simply gave formal expression to what's generally, though unthematically accepted throughout much of contemporary Western culture. How many people, especially young people today, would casually hold that the determination of ethical rectitude is largely, if not exclusively, the prerogative of the individual? That's the fruit of eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Does that make sense? That's the fruit of eating of this tree. Notice, please, just after the fall, the first humans realized they were naked and sought to cover themselves. You know, I would interpret this not so much as as shame, but as a deep and preoccupying self-consciousness. See, when, when we acknowledge that goodness and value lie outside of ourselves, in God and in the objective order that reflects God's mind, in that case, we look outward. We tend to forget the self. However, when we're convinced that our own freedom is the source of value, our own wills, then we tend to turn inward protectively and fearfully. There's the image of Adam and Eve now covering themselves in self-consciousness. What's fundamentally the problem, spiritually speaking, as we're revisiting now the fundamentals? Why deep down are so many of us so unhappy? There's no better guide to answering these questions than chapter 3 of the book of Genesis. Can I urge everybody, as Lent commences, revisit this great text. And God bless you. I hope you were moved today by the word on fire. I pray that together we might become a people on fire with love for God and neighbor here in Chicago and wherever these words are heard. Until we join Father Barron again next week, I'm Cardinal Francis George, and I pray that God will bless you and those you love.